Welcome to the Scientific Sense podcast, where we explore emerging ideas from science, policy, economics, and technology. My name is Gil Epen. We talk with world's leading academics and experts about their recent research or general areas of topical interest. Scientific Sense is an unstructured conversation with no agenda or preparation. We cover a wide variety of domains where new discoveries are made and new technologies are developed on a daily basis. We are most interested in how new ideas affect society and help educate the world how to pursue a rewarding and enjoyable life rooted in science, logic, and information. We seek knowledge without boundaries or constraints and provide unedited content of conversations with researchers and leaders who love what they do. A companion blog to this podcast can be found at scientificsense.com and this podcast is available on over a dozen platforms and directly at scientificsense.net. If you have suggestions for topics, guests, and other ideas, please send them to info at scientificsense.com and I can be reached at gil at epen.info. My guest today is Professor Alison Paul, who is Professor in Life Sciences at Carnegie Mellon University. Her research is focused on understanding how experience assembles and alters the properties of neural circuits in the cerebral cortex in both normal and diseased state. Welcome, Alison. Sorry, I just lost you. Okay. Can you hear me now? Uh-huh. Um, so, so did you hear the introduction? I, yeah, you just cut out at the very end of it. Okay, okay. So I'll just say welcome, Alison. And we'll, uh, I can edit this part out. Uh, sure. Welcome, Alison. Thank you for having me. Yeah, so thanks for doing this. So I want to start with uh, one of your papers, recent papers from 2019, uh, Progressive Circuit Changes During Learning and Disease. You say in this paper, there's a joke among some neuroscientists, how many neurons does it take to make a decision? Uh, I'll tell you another one, uh, Alison, um, among uh, business people and politicians, uh, we don't actually use the brain to make decisions, we use the gut. It's called the gut-based decision. So I, I guess the, the answer is zero. Well, you know, bacteria can chemotax, <laughs> phototax towards a a food source, and they have no neurons. <laughs> so there's a lot of different ways to transmit information in using just molecules without neurons. But of course, neurons do something much more interesting. And so when we think about decision-making, we certainly um, don't think of a simple process like, you know, a yes or no, I'll go there or not go. Yeah. Um, but in many ways, you know, when we study animals, that's all we're watching. We, we're watching, you know, their avoidance or approach behaviors. Mm. Yeah, I mean, there, there is some very close analogs now to artificial intelligence, as you know. Um, functional design, we can, we can observe sort of the input-output mechanism without a very clear understanding of the structure uh, of the device. And um, in the case of the brain also, Alison, you know, I was an engineer in prehistoric times and without knowing a lot about the brain, when I look at the design of the brain, obviously the complexity of that is, is really amazing. Uh, I don't know, I can quite remember a billion neurons and you have something like uh, 10,000 synapses per neuron or something like that. Yeah, about so, right. 10 to the power 9 or 4, so 10 to the 13 connections in the brain. That's a complex mechanism, but it's an electromagnetic chemical system. So in some ways, uh, the design is somewhat inefficient, right? It takes time to, uh, to send uh, messages across the system. I mean, so just to get some numbers straight here, it's probably more like 80 billion neurons. Okay. And even in the mouse, it's 80 million neurons. So we're talking a lot of neurons. 
Yeah. I think you're right. It's around 10,000 synapses per cell, but it might be as much as 30,000 synapses for many cells. Hmm. Um, yet, yet, you know, in terms of energy usage, the brain is far thousands of times more efficient yeah. than deep learning networks that artificial yeah. intelligence and engineers have built. So, you know, I think that the biological systems are just spanking those engineered systems right now. They can do a few things pretty well, but the brain can do many things very well with much less energy consumption. Yeah, yeah. The energy consumption is really striking. Uh, if I remember this correctly, Alison, about 20 to 25% of the total energy intake uh, is what the brain needs. So it's 2000 calories, that is like 400 calories or so. With 400 calories, it's doing quite a bit of stuff that no computer could do. Yeah, I mean, it needs those calories for sure. And at the same time, um, the energy that it actually uses is much less than what you might consider a computer would have to use. I mean, you're, you know, we're thinking that, you know, I mean, the number of petaflops to train a deep learning network yeah. is in terms of carbon emissions. <laughs> yeah. Training a single deep learning model is roughly equal to the carbon footprint of five cars. <laughs> More than 10 times the amount of carbon emissions that the average American generates, right? For training a single deep learning model. And so you know, the brain is vastly more efficient. And we have no idea how that happens. Yeah, so, so that's, that's sort of a striking uh, contrast. Uh, so deep learning neural networks, as you say, um, takes a lot of data. You need a lot of labeled cases to, to train it. Uh, whereas the brain doesn't need a lot of data. Actually, it seems to learn quite fast. And I don't know much about but the new circuits, the throughput are in the in the order of bits, right? So the, we are not really talking about large amounts of data being shuttled, shuttled around in the brain either. You know, I think we don't actually know how much data is being shuttled around. And I would say we're not actually... You know, I think the brain is very good at generalizing things, but, you know, of course, when I sit in a lecture and show my students a couple images and expect that they're now going to know <laughs> yeah. what they'll be able to recognize, you know, for example, what a synapse looks like from an electron micrograph, you know, I show them two or three images and I think that they have a pretty good chance of doing it. But remember, those those students have a wealth of information across their lifespan that they're are, they're plugging into when they make that when they can make that decision or recognize what a synapse looks like. You know, I think we don't appreciate how much those decades of experience begin to shape their perception, right? They're immediately putting that information into different buckets that are like other things that they've seen before. And so, you know, I, I don't know if it's quite accurate to say that um, people, human brains can learn with fewer examples or much more efficiently than machines. Yeah. But they, because they're, of course, they have so much structure, they come to the table with so much structure, right? From infancy, we are learning at every instant. Yeah, so in the paper, you say a critical step toward understanding cognition, learning, and brain dysfunction will be identification of the underlying cellular conditions that occur in and across discrete brain areas as well as how they are progressively altered by experience or disease. So this is, this is sort of your, one of your major research focus, right? How does experience alter uh, experiences of the brain? Um, from, so almost like a, well, I don't know if this is the right term, Alison, almost like a hardware perspective, it seems to alter the brain, right? Absolutely. I mean, you know, we can train an animal and then peer inside the brain and see evidence for synaptic reorganization virtually immediately. It's remarkable. You know, you can't, you can't do something to an animal without leaving some kind of imprint on its brain. Of course, you got to know where to look. But um, and sometimes those changes are not long lasting changes. 
Um, but they're persistent enough that we can then experimentally um, identify them in an isolated specimen of brain, right? So it, it's not as though it, you know, it's initiated in an instant and disappears in an instant. They're persistent and durable enough that we can identify them and study them for hours after that animal has had some experience. Yeah, and so those experiences are sort of permanent, right? Uh, at least, um, at least for a period of time. And well, there's so so I I don't know if you should think of it as permanent, and there may be some parts of the brain where it's permanent. I would say it's durable in the yeah. sense that you can look at tissue. It's not state dependent, right? It's not just that there's a, a small modification in how it's used. It actually is leaving an imprint on the brain. Um, and that has to physically, mechanically be relieved in order for that um, to go away. Right. And so uh, once the neurons, once the circuits are in some learned state, they're going to remain there without any additional energy input into it, right? You know, we don't know. <laughs> yeah. It may be that, um, you know, some of these changes are labile. So, you know, we can see evidence for them hours after they've occurred. Hmm. If we wait days later, they may disappear. And there is good reason to think that in the early stages of learning, many synapses are altered. And then as that learning is consolidated, many neural circuits may revert back to their baseline state. Yeah. It appears that memories become transferred or stored in some other brain area. And how that happens is still very unclear, magical almost. Yeah. And then clearly uh, other area that you look at is uh, how disease uh, it changes, um, changes the neural circuits also. You know, from an evolutionary perspective, I would imagine that brain is designed with an expectation and life expectation of 25, 30 years. And we are now using it three times as much uh, from a from a design from a use perspective, uh, and so I guess a lot of the problems we see later on are are really uh, just like in engineering systems. It is it has gone far beyond its design life, right? You know, I don't know if I agree with that. I mean, we have a lot of different organisms with different lifespan lengths, and you know, humans have a long lifespan, but. You know, there are other marine organisms that probably have a similar lifespan. You know, we yeah. know that some of the giant turtles have very long lifespans. Um, you know, we know trees can live for thousands of years. Of course, they, they do have plasticity, but we don't think that they have neurons and they make decisions in the same way that we do with our brains. I, I think that, um, I, and I would probably disagree with the fact that our normal lifespan is about 30 years. I think probably our normal lifespan is more like 60 to 80 years. No, but I was thinking from an evolutionary perspective, you know, if we rewind time back, say 10,000, 50,000 years, that is what, um, that, that's what I would think the, from an evolutionary perspective, the design lifespan might have been, right? I maybe I would cut back, you know, 10 or 20 years on that. But yeah. I don't, I don't think our natural lifespan is 30 years. So, so and, and I, I mean, you know, I don't know where you're you're sort of headed towards this. Are you thinking that the brain should become full at some point? No, I was just thinking, you know, obviously, I don't know anything about it. Um, uh, so if you look at the Homo sapiens, um, I mean, you know, the evolutionary time periods are quite long. So we haven't had much changes, I would argue, let's say for 100,000 years. Uh, so in Africa, when Homo sapiens emerged, you know, they were frequently eaten by tigers and lions and <laughs> they didn't really really have a very interesting life uh, early on. So I would imagine the early Homo sapiens didn't really exceed 30, 40 years at the most. You know, I, I think that's probably a factual question. I don't know the answer to it. <clears throat> it's actually quite interesting. I do think that as language developed and we became technologically more sophisticated, probably around 100,000 years ago, um, you know, we humans are clever. And it's not, uh, I think they may, may have been able to outwit 
those predators <laughs> yeah. way that really enhance their lifespan compared to, you know, other organisms. Yeah. So, you know, I clearly have a sort of an engineering bias here. So when we look back into the brain, um, the, the electromagnetic chemical system, the neurotransmitters that need to get released uh, for memories to form, um, the, the neurons are doing a lot of work, right? So it's cycling through many, many cycles of, of these things. Uh, so so you use the term durable. Uh, how durable are the neurons? Well, I mean, neurons will last for decades, right? I mean, with few exceptions in the brain, there's not a lot of neurogenesis. The neurons that you're born with are largely the neurons that you're going to die with. Yeah. What What can change is not the cell itself, but the connections that it makes. And we know that there's a lot of early plasticity as networks are organized, but there still is plenty of plasticity that happens later in life. And one of the, um, I think, sort of cardinal features of many parts of the brain, like the hippocampus, for example, or the cerebral cortex, is just that they can be trained. They can exhibit experience-dependent plasticity through the lifespan. Yeah. And so, you know, the general idea that uh, if you don't use it, you will lose it. Uh, is that thing applicable for the brain too, right? If, if you exercise it, uh, if, I, if I understand you correctly, Alison, if you exercise it, you can keep it reasonably plastic for a long period of time. Well, I mean, I, I feel that that must be the case. I think that there's probably some good evidence, you know, in terms of psychological studies, um, but I don't, that's, I don't, it's not something I sort of feel like I have a good professional um, handle on because we're not really looking at aging animals or looking at the role of experience yeah. in stimulating uh, mental acuity, you know, throughout the lifespan. But it seems, it seems like a good bet. It seems like a, a reasonable approach if you're concerned that you're, you know, you want to, you want to stay sharp as you, as you age. Yeah, so some of the animal models, uh, experiments that you run, I wondered, uh, this is probably a testable hypothesis, right, Alison? So for instance, if you take, a, you know, sort of an aged rat, uh, we could ask the question, can you, can you teach an old dog new tricks? I mean, that, that is a testable hypothesis, right? Yeah, yeah, for sure. I mean, um, you know, there's a lot of, of habits that uh, we all develop. And, you know, erasing some of those habits can be quite difficult. But there are ways in which we could promote the generation of new memories. You know, being in a new environment sometimes can be a very powerful driver for memory. Yeah. Um, so. Yeah. So do you have any um, any insights into, um, you know, sort of the early going of a young adult? Um the behaviors that you partake in that have some direct influence on brain plasticity, I'm thinking, you know, like five years to 15 years, uh, does that translate into sort of a lifelong advantage in plasticity in any way? That's a great question. I mean, it probably would be a really fun to do experiments like that. You know, one of the things I'm constantly up against is how to design exciting experiments that I can also afford to do. And so the kind of question you're asking is, could we take an animal and stimulate it in some way, either by some experience or um, training, so that it, when it ages, when it's, you know, two to three years, well, animals, mice don't live for three years, but, you know, that when it's a year and a half old, that it somehow might enhance its ability to then pick up something completely orthogonal, completely different. Yeah. We haven't tried something like that. I, I, I don't know who has, actually. I think it would be quite an exciting experiment. You know, my, uh, the constraint of a professional scientist is always how do you find the right people to do these experiments and how do you pay them? And so there's a very um, you know, rigorous process by which, you know, people's ideas are reviewed and evaluated. And so it often locks you into doing the things that you really are professionally, that are most sophisticated and that you're professionally most equipped to carry out. So I haven't done those experiments. They sound really interesting. 
I think it would be a great thing to do, you know, with an undergrad. Um, and the cost is really, can you house the animals for long enough yeah. that you can, um, and will the data be clean enough that, you know, with a small group of animals, let's say 10 or 20 animals, that you would be able to see a really clear difference? Yeah, the opposite question is equally interesting, right? If you don't have sufficient stimulation in early going, do you exhibit the opposite characteristic? You know, I, I think that experimentally, uh, laboratory scientists are ill-equipped to investigate that because a lot of laboratory animals live very unchallenging lives. <laughs> yeah. um, but, but there's really interesting evidence that if you enrich the environments, that animals live in, that um, many things about the brain, sort of just fundamental ways in which information is mapping onto brain circuits begins to change as well. Yeah, so, so that's always a constraint in this lab experiments, right? Domesticated animals um, are given sort of a very standard set of um, environmental conditions that doesn't challenge them. I saw some study, Alison, I, I can't quite remember, that showed that the IQ or, or the capacity of domesticated animals have declined uh, in the last 10,000 years. So cows, dogs, cats mm -hmm. have all become dumber <laughs> as they got domesticated because they don't have any challenges in a domesticated environment. Well, it may be that. It may also be that they have um, genetic, uh, you know, they become genetically more homogeneous. And, uh, you know, many of our, our livestock, for example, have very low um, genetic diversity. Mm -hmm. and, and that may not, you know, enhance adaptive, intelligent responses. Yeah, yeah. So it could be multiple reasons. I want to talk a bit about uh, sort of the disease states um, that that you look at. Um, Alzheimer's is a is a big area. So, so what's our latest thinking there from a uh, from brain uh, hardware and the? Well, I'll tell you one of the things that we've been doing recently. You know, I I, I believe that the way that synapses are distributed is going to tell us a lot about how the brain is processing information and how that information processing can go awry. And so, you know, the problem is that a synapse is not just a synapse. It's not like you just sprinkle a bunch of synapses into the brain and, and then they kind of work in some defined way. Yeah. It matters who is talking to whom. The, the analogy I like to use is a sort of text messages. And I could look at your phone I sometimes look at my daughter's phone and I can see that she has 30 unread text messages, right? And that's really great, but it, it's not, actually not the number of text messages that's important. It's who they are coming from and who they are going to. And synapses are very much the same. It matters who's talking to whom. So we know in late stages of Alzheimer's, we know many things that go awry. But one thing that we're discovering is that in the very early stages, especially in inherited forms of Alzheimer's, where there's a, a defined gene that is um, uh, mutated in some way, that the organization of synapses, even in very young animals, is already um, aberrant. It's already messed up. We can already see imbalances and in inputs from cell type A to cell type B, and an overabundance of contacts from cell type D onto cell type B, right? So all of these networks, are exquisitely arranged and they may be disrupted well before you see any symptoms of disease. Yeah. And so um, if I understand this correctly, Alison, correct me if I'm wrong, um, specialization, um, if you are sort of overusing some aspects of your brain and underusing others, would that result in less plasticity for the brain? You know, I don't know what it means, overuse and underuse. So what I, I mean is, you know, going back to the text messages that, uh, that you talked about. So suppose, you know, uh, I interact with only three people, but I interact a lot with three, right? As opposed to somebody who interacts with 300, but very little. Would, would we see a difference? 
Uh, you know, I, I don't know. I, I would guess the quality of that interaction that matters. Yeah. Yeah, so, so, so do we have any insights into, again, if you look back in the brain, um, where does the plasticity originate from? Is it, is it diversity? Is it, do we have an inkling how we might be able to improve it? You know, I think reward is a very important part of learning. Yeah. And, um, you know, one of the things I think is clear for anybody who has children or any teacher who has students is that there is a balance between reward, accountability, and punishment. And those are powerful ways to, re to reshape neural circuits. And some of those directly translate into you know, specific types of neurotransmitters that are released at very precise times um, when there's a, a sort of a contingent stimulus. You know, so you do this correctly and it's rewarding. And that reward itself starts to reorganize neural circuits. So, so the environment has a huge role to play then, right? Um, uh, you know, I, I, I think so. Um, I would say that the reward signal um, is, is very important. And I think that there's probably some developmental regulation to this, that depending upon the, the age you're at, you know, punishments and rewards may have maybe more or less powerful in terms of reshaping your, your brain. Right. Yeah, so I know that you do a lot of work in this area in terms of sort of the, the changes in the neural circuit. So um, we know PTSD uh, is, is one such uh, situation, right, where you have a severe trauma uh, and the brain circuits are altered to such an extent that it can really reset or something along those lines. Is that the right way to think about it? Um. Yeah, you know, actually a lot of work has been done in animals with fear conditioning. Yeah. And it's a very powerful sort of memory. You know, there's multiple memory systems. One type of memory is that, you know, sort of single shot episodic learning. And I think for things that are very traumatic or very frightening, you don't need to repeat them over and over again to see that they are, are immediately reflected in a change in the animal's behavior or in our behavior. Um, those kinds of emotional memories, especially with fear, are very strongly encoded in neural circuits and very durably encoded in neural circuits. And there's a lot of evidence that says um, even if you can um, suppress that response, you can overwrite it. Yeah. The minute that stimulus comes back, it can actually be reinstated as if it was never, had ne was never gone. And so people are very interested in how to how to harness the mechanisms, the molecular mechanisms of synaptic plasticity to perhaps be able to erase negative memories or maladaptive memories. Hmm. And um, erasing memories, uh, <laughs> it, it, it is thematic. Um, so, so do we have are we getting closer to some sort of a, a therapeutic intervention for erasing memories? I don't know about that. I mean, <laughs> I, I think that um, probably, uh, you know, even things, something like, you know, fear conditioning, like erasing a fear memory, you know, yeah. this reconsolidation update uh, procedure, you know, it's controversial. Yeah. I mean, it's mysterious to me, actually, how, you know, for example, my students can forget so much. And yet, <laughs> and yet probably some of that information is still lurking in their brain somewhere. You know, I have no idea where it's encoded or, or why they can access it and at some times and not others. Um, you know, I had I just gave a final exam in my in my um, molecules to mind my introductory neuroscience class. And the last question on the exam was, um, the last question on the exam was, what are you going to remember about this course in six months' time? List three things you're going to remember. And it was yeah. absolutely fascinating for me to see what, they're, what they came up with. 
And one of the things that immediately became clear is that everybody had a different answer. And um, there were a few, a couple things that came up more than once, but a lot of what people will remember were things that kind of fit into some framework of something they already knew a little bit about. And all of a sudden it became like clear, right? All of a sudden, you know, there was that aha moment, like, oh my God, it has to work like this. Yeah, it's, um, I mean, memory is such a complex thing. One of the things I, I was uh, looking at in your paper, you said important idea that relates changes in inhibition to excitatory synaptic plasticity is the disinhibition hypothesis. Uh, well, you know, now you're getting into something really interesting and sort of dear to my heart. You know, yeah. a lot of the things that we've been talking about are these kind of gener generalized phenomenon about memory. And I yeah. think that they're very interesting. You know, I, I, I always felt like I had a terrible memory. And part of the reason that I think my professional interests are in this area is because I think I have a terrible memory. And I'm so interested in, you know, how, why do some people find it so easy to remember things? And I find it so difficult. But when you get down to the answer to that question, what you can imagine the answer to that question would be, it has to be about neurons. It has to be about biology. It has to be about connections between cells and how they're altered and when they're altered and how long they're altered, right? It has to be that way because our brain, our mind is a brain. Our mind is made up of cells and synapses and proteins and molecules. It has to be that way. So the kinds of work that we're doing to understand how different types of neurons work together in order to stably encode or consolidate memory, that seems to be the algorithm by which neural circuits are built in order to remember things. And that's what I think the, that's where I think the answer will be. Hmm. Um, unlike physical systems, Alison, I, I think the biological systems there is a distinct difference between storage and retrieval, right? Uh, is that true? Uh, you, you know, I mean, I think if you store something, you've got to be able to retrieve it. <laughs> so, yeah, I, I suppose that retrieval is a different process than storage. I mean, you know, we're working at this very early stage of experience-dependent plasticity of learning, right? Yeah. And part of the reason that I want to do that is because I feel like, um, you know, we cannot hope to understand what's happening in the long-term um, stages of memory if we don't understand what's happening at the very beginning, hmm. right? Why are some things, why do some things stick in your mind? Well, let me ask you this. What, what is, um, what do you remember about um, last March? Uh, I remember reading that, looking at the statistics for COVID-19 spread around the world. That's what I remember, yeah. And so as things were shutting down, do you remember sort of the last time you did something or the a place that you were when you realized all of a sudden you weren't going to be able to do this anymore? Uh, that, that I don't. Um, uh, you know, uh, I know that, you know, in a very traumatic uh, situation like 9-11 or something, we have great memories of where you were. But um, the arrival of the pandemic, uh, probably because it's sort of a continuous process, uh, doesn't leave a very strong memory of a specific instance, at least in my case. Where were you when the pandemic really hit? Uh, I was in Connecticut in the U.S., yeah. So it was pretty. It was pretty difficult there. Yeah, it was. Uh, it was difficult. Yeah, the, all I remember, Alison, though, is looking at all the all the numbers. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but not the location, not the, you know, not the timing. Whereas, so th this would be an interesting interesting thing. I don't know if you have insights into it. Like nine eleven, I can precisely tell you. Uh, where I was precisely, you know, from an X, Y, Z coordinate perspective and timing perspective. Uh, but that's not the case for March 2020. I don't know if there's any difference there. 
Yeah, it's interesting. I, I, I mean, you may have been on the Eastern Seaboard during um, during that time. I, I, I can tell you, uh, this is the analogy that I was I was headed towards. You know, I remember um, I was living in London last March, and I remember walking into my living room and I heard uh, the announcer on the BBC saying that Poland had closed its borders, <laughs> and I was absolutely shocked because I don't think the borders to a country have been closed since World War II in <laughs> Europe. And it seemed like an absolutely um, extreme and irre you know irrevocable kind of step that just told us we were in a, a new world. Yeah. Now, if you ask me what I was doing in March of 2019, you know, I, 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 maybe I could dig back and sort of find that, but I, it's, it's much more difficult for me to remember. Yeah. So, uh, mechanistic perspective, uh, do we know there is some release of chemicals uh, as, you know, sort of a traumatic uh, period that enhances the storage of those memories? Well, certainly there are... Um, you know, in sort of educational practice, we know that one way to get our students to remember something is actually to examine them on it, right? And those exams and quizzes, those are actually how the, you know, that's where the learning happens, right? So those, you know, some um, neurotransmitters or neuromodulators that appear to um, enhance memory are things like acetylcholine. And in fact, cholinergic agonists or drugs that modulate acetylcholine as a pathway are some of the only drugs that we have that are really effective at treating diseases like Alzheimer's. So it seems as though salience, right, when something important happens to you or traumatic happens to you, that that changes the state, brain state. And part of the way it changes brain state is by the release of things like acetylcholine or norepinephrine, for example. And that does help encode memory. That absolutely helps the durable change in synaptic strength that we then can characterize in the laboratory. Yeah, I, I was thinking, I have an idea for you, Alison. You asked some CMU engineers to design a device that will give a shock to your students at the appropriate time. And that might enhance their memories. <laughs> I don't know if I'd be able to get IRB approval for that, um, but you know, it's a sort of an interesting idea. I mean, you know, of course you could also give them a reward and that's yeah. like, it'd be a little bit easier to do. Um, you know, if I tossed somebody a $20 bill when they got the right answer, you know, I might have people preparing really, um, you know, working really hard to prepare for each lecture. Great, great. We'll take a quick break, Alison. When we come back, uh, we'll talk more about this. Okay. This is a Scientific Sense podcast providing unscripted conversations with leading academics and researchers on a variety of topics. If you'd like to sponsor this podcast, please reach out to info at scientificsense.com. So, Alison, uh, we are back. Uh, we were talking about the brain, how the neural circuits change uh, by experience, by disease, um, how the memories form, how we uh, store and retrieve memories. Uh, I want to go back to the paper and touch on uh, one area here, motor learning and sequential circuit changes. You say motor learning has been a powerful way to identify a sequence of synaptic changes that occur in inhibitory circuits to facilitate sub subsequent plasticity. So motor training, meaning uh, some sort of a physical movement, right? Yeah, typically what's done is they train um, an animal in a reach task. So it has to reach through a little slit um, to grab something like a seed and the animal really likes those seeds. And so it has to maneuver its paw through that slit in a coordinated way in order to pick up the seed to eat it. And so, so in that experiment, what, 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 what did you find? 
Well, so these aren't our experiments. These are done by um, a, a number of different groups, actually, um, yeah. and because it's been a very powerful way to visualize um, changes in synapses and neural circuits in the brain. Motor cortex happens to be in a really easy place for imaging. And so you can build a tiny little window on the brain and then watch what's happening to synapses as the animal is learning. So what you see is that um, as the animal is learning this reach task, you can see new synapses forming and you can see a reduction in inhibitory um, synapses. Yeah. And so does it translate into, uh, I'm just looking at more broadly, uh, the plasticity that we may find, does it translate into other skills in the brain? Well, interestingly enough, in these kind of motor tasks, when you train the animal in a different motor task, so there's a task called the vermicelli task, yeah. you give, the, you give the, the animal like a piece of spaghetti. And they, the, you know, mice will eat spaghetti very happily, dried spaghetti. And the way that they do it is they put their little paws hand over hand over hand to eat that spaghetti, right? So they're sort of slowly moving it up and they're moving their hands, interleaving their hands to, to move that spaghetti up. And that's a coordinated movement as well. It seems as though synapses that you add when you do this reach task are not the same ones that you add when you learn how to do this vermicelli eating task. So it seems as though, you know, there's a lot of space to learn different types of tasks, different motor tasks, and probably also different sensory tasks as well. Um, and they can all overlap in the same space. Yeah. Is there any data, Alison, um, that shows any sort of correlation between people who are good in sports and Alzheimer's? Oh, I have no idea. Um, I think I think exercise can promote neurogenesis in the hippocampus. This yeah. is one of the few parts of the brain where um, neurons are born throughout the lifespan. And it turns out that if you exercise regularly, um, the level of neurogenesis that you have in your hippocampus is much higher. Now that is associated with better memory. And so I think in that sense, um, absolutely exercise um, may be protective. Yeah. And, and we don't know if there is a difference between sort of garden variety exercise and really picking up a skill in, in sport, right? We don't know if there's a difference. I don't know if there's a difference. It's an interesting idea. I yeah. think skilled motor learning is absolutely fascinating. Um, I don't know how um, skilled motor learning, for example, for a violinist who's really working on their position of their digits, right? Very fine motor skill might be equivalent to um, motor learning for a long jumper, for example, in track and field. Um, you know, it seems as though both of those are skills that have to be learned. Both of them involve motor control, um, but it's not clear that a violinist who's learned how to, you know, manipulate all their digits independently is um, gonna learn how to do the long jump any better than uh, somebody who has neither played the violin nor done a long jump. Yeah, I, I remember seeing some data a long time ago that, and I don't know if this is true or it was verified, uh, that people who have a lot of different interests, um, you know, music, sports, uh, and other things, uh, seem to have a negative correlation to neurodegenerative diseases later on in life. So, for, for instance, professionals, doctors, engineers, uh, and so on, who are very specialized in their area, but don't necessarily do a lot of other things, seem to be more prone to Alzheimer's. Have you seen any data like that? Not, nothing like that. I have no idea if that's the case. And I, you know, I would say it's probably really so dependent upon the individual, you know? Yeah. I mean, yeah. many, many physicians or, or nurses that I, I know have, you know, very rich lives and many people who seem as though they could have very rich lives, you know, uh, they, they don't have a lot of hobbies, you, you know, they, and it's not, it's not clear that your profession really is driving that. I wouldn't be surprised if there's some personality aspects to, you know, <laughs> yeah. your capacity and your interest in, in learning new things. 
Yeah. Um, but I'm not sure it maps easily onto professions. Yeah. How yeah. do you? How, what do you think about your own memory? Do you feel like you have a really good memory? Uh, uh, I'm good at uh, good at memorizing concepts. I'm less good at memorizing information. If that makes sense to you. Yeah. It does. And so I, so I want to ask you, do you see a difference? Um, so once I learn a concept, I'll never forget it. But if I learn some data, you know, I generally don't retain it. So is there a difference in the brain in that direction in any way? Well, we know that there is, are multiple types of memory. Broadly speaking, we could divide memory into episodic memory and procedural memory. Procedural memory yeah. is more of a motor kind of memory. Episodic memory is really of an episode, right? It's of a word or a fact or a specific place or root navigational route. And so, um, you know, some people are much better at procedural kinds of memories. Some, some people are very good at, you know, those sort of factual recalls. Yeah, yeah. That that's exactly so. The procedure memory is 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 both conceptual and probably long term, right? Yeah, I I don't know actually in terms of aging. I mean, these are very interesting questions. I I don't know if procedural. I I suspect that it probably is though. You know, something that you learned how to do as a child. Yeah. You know, even if you haven't done it for decades, right? You you might be able to pick it up and and you know sort of figure it out or at least be competent at it in a way that a, a real novice would not be. Yeah, so, so going back to your students, Alison, I want to make a statement and uh, see if you agree with it. Um, our whole education system, it seems to me, is really geared toward memorizing data, memorizing information. But we have Google now, you can just Google it. There is no reason to memorize data anymore. Uh, so you, we only need to memorize concepts. Uh, so do we have a problem with our education system, how it's constructed? You know, it's very interesting. We're, I feel like we're at an inflection point in how we are using training and using um, uh, information uh, in education. You know, this past semester, all my classes were online. And it became impossible for me to prevent people from using their computer. I mean, the exam was administered on the computer. You know, you could disable the internet, but then everybody has their phones. I mean, you know, there are a million ways for people to cheat. And in fact, the kind of information I want my students to retain is not, you know, uh, some fact about, you know, those size of a synaptic vesicle you know i what i want them to be able to do is think about how different parts of the brain fit together to have particular functions everything yeah. in my class was open note and open book and yeah. open internet i wanted people to work by themselves but i didn't restrict access to any information source and on the final exam i asked them whether they what they thought the, the strengths and limitations of that approach was Everybody loved it. And they said, you know, these facts aren't so important to me um, to know, right? What I really need to know is how to think. And, you know, I can't imagine the world where I can't use the internet to sort of find something out. And, and it seems ridiculous to, to test me on those facts. At the same time, you know, before students get to college, right? There's this whole, the college board offers AP exams. Yeah. And those are based upon you know, facts and more facts and more facts, right? And students don't have access to the internet and they sit in a room and they're proctored and, you know, they can't touch or do anything. And it does seem like, a, you know, a, a sort of antiquated form of learning. I, I agree with you. Yeah, it seems very archaic. Uh, so in conclusion, Alison, um, I know that your lab is doing a lot of work in this area. It's fascinating research. Uh, what are you most excited about? Uh, if you look forward five years, where do you think you would make uh, the most interesting contribution? Well, I'll tell you this. You know, I'm really interested in variability in behavior and variability in some of the measurements that we're making. Why do some animals show enormous changes and other animals show very, very small changes? 
And I feel like as a biologist, when I see that kind of variability, um, it means I haven't asked the right question yet. And, um, you know, I think when you can refine the question, then, you know, the data become very, very clear. We have, we've been doing some experiments recently and, you know, my student was struggling to figure out why she couldn't repeat somebody else's experiments and she'd sort of do them and then she'd get this result and then she'd do them again and she, the result would sort of disappear and then she'd do it again and then she'd kind of see it. And we tried everything to figure out what might be going wrong. And just the other day, um, we said, well, why don't you organize the data like this? And all of a sudden, everything she had done, everything became clear. And we'd just been asking the wrong question. And I, I think what I'm really excited about is breaking things down um, into the right uh, components so that the effects that we see are obvious. And they're obvious not when we have 100,000 samples, but they're obvious when we have 20 or 50 samples. One of the things that I think will be absolutely critical is not looking at every neuron in the, in the brain altogether, but looking at one particular type of neuron versus another type of neuron. So neurons have molecular identities. I think when we can break those down, things will become much more clear. But we also can't forget that the brain it exists in an organism that itself has had experiences. It has a sex, it has a, a, a parentage, it has, a, um, it has siblings, yeah. um, it has prior experience. And some of that may also be very important in helping us understand why memory seems to be differently encoded in some, in some circuits and some animals than others. Great, excellent. This has been great, Addison. Thanks so much for spending time with me. Thanks a lot. It was nice to chat with you. Thank you. Have a good afternoon. You too. Bye. This is a Scientific Sense podcast providing unscripted conversations with leading academics and researchers on a variety of topics. If you'd like to sponsor this podcast, please reach out to info at scientificsense.com.